You are listening to A Beautiful Mess, a new sermon series by Crosspoint Peachtree City. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. The truth is you and I are Corinth. Um, that Corinth is the smelly kid in class. Corinth is the kid that can't throw. Corinth is the, uh, the loner at the lunch table. And, and you and I are Corinth. We're part of that story that there's no perfect church. There never has been. Um, there never will be. There's a perfect savior who died for his bride, the church, and his name is Jesus. And we celebrate him. He's the perfect one. He's the righteous one. We deeply need Jesus. Uh, the church is a bunch of people who come together as sinners collectively to share their lives with one another. So you can just imagine how that's going to go, right? We deeply need the grace of God. We deeply need the spirit of God working in our lives. Uh, the truth is that you and I are Corinth, but the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus came for Corinth, that, that Jesus came for prostitutes and liars and drunkards and thieves, that Jesus didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, but he came for sinners like you and me. That's the beauty of the gospel. And so you have the messiness of, of what we bring to the story, and you have the beauty of what Jesus brings to our stories, and thus we have this series entitled The Beautiful Mess. And so we're going to continue to work through this series this morning. Um, if you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath uh, one of the seats in front of you nearby. You can grab that Bible and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible's yours for free. We want you to have a Bible, so please take that. Let me read this morning's passage, and we'll pray, and we'll just jump in, and we'll get to work. The Apostle Paul says this, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Verse 7. However... Not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for uh, not leaving us with simply a general revelation of yourself through creation. Uh, we would certainly know that you exist if you left us with nothing more than that, but we would have no right understanding of who we are in light of your character and our deep need for a savior. So we thank you for the Bible. God, I pray that we would find ourselves uh, immersing ourselves more and more in the scriptures and growing to understand just who you are in all of your character and, and 
just how deep the sin problem runs in our lives and that as a result, the cross would loom larger, that we would see Jesus as uh, more and more glorious in light of, of those realities. God, would you do what only you can do by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning and uh, work in our hearts to draw us to repentance, um, to help us to believe the gospel where there may be unbelief in our lives right now, um, to preach the gospel where we may be preaching other things to ourselves, God. Um, And for those who don't know and love you this morning, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would uh, raise them from spiritual death to life this morning, that you would breathe life into their spiritual lungs, so to speak, for your glory and their joy. We lift these things up to you, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, this is a weird passage, right? Um, I I seriously doubt that, that any of us in this room... Uh, We're really wrestling this week with whether or not we were going to go to one of the local pagan temples here in Peachtree City and and go participate in a bacon dinner. Like, I I seriously doubt that that was a real issue for us. When I read this text, I was a little bit devastated that there there are places on planet Earth that I can't eat bacon, and I love bacon. So um, that was one that was going on for me at a mind and heart level. The reality of it is that you can find yourself sometimes opening the Bible and going, how in the world do we cross that bridge to present day? What does that have to do with us? And so I want to attempt to build that bridge this morning, but in order to do so, we have to first look at the situation for the people in the city of Corinth. In in first century Greco-Roman subculture, you you had this strange thing going on. Paul says, now, concerning food offered to idols, that in Paul's day, we talked about this in the series on the seven churches in Revelation chapters two and three, that animals were sacrificed in pagan temples all the time. It was constantly happening, and much of the animal would be given to the worshiper and perhaps the priest who had helped to perform the sacrifice after the animal was, was sacrificed. Only a part of the animal would be burned, and there was much meat left over. And so one of two things would happen. Either the worshiper would invite his friends into the temple to throw a big party, feasting on the meat of that animal, or the worshiper would take the meat home and perhaps even sell it in the marketplace. And so the question was, what do we do as Christians in the midst of this kind of subculture? How do we engage uh, the world that we live in? On top of that, you had the social pressure that Christians were facing in first century places like the city of Corinth. That Christians were perceived as being antisocial because they wouldn't participate in city festivals due to the reality that sacrifices were being offered to pagan gods in the midst of these festivals. They were accused of being atheists for refusing to worship the pagan gods, and they were accused of not caring about the welfare of the city because everyone knew that uh, the Greco-Roman gods were the, the patrons and protectors of the city. And so to not offer sacrifices to those gods was to not seek the welfare of the very city itself. And so you have all of this social and political pressure that Christians are facing. And on top of all of that, going back to last week, there's a famine in the city. So we're just hungry. What can we eat and not eat in the midst of having a food shortage in the very city that we live in? What do we do with this? And so the response of the Corinthians at large was this. The Bible tells us that idols are not real. The Bible tells us that there's only one God, not a lot of gods. We know this to be true, so eating meat offered to idols really isn't that big of a deal. We're free to do so if we want to. And to summarize where the Apostle Paul is going to go this morning, Paul essentially says this, For the Christian, our freedom should be exercised through the lens of love for God and one another. 
And our knowledge should be rooted in love, a knowledge which builds up rather than puffs up. That's where the Apostle Paul is going to go this morning. And so as you look at the first few verses, you see this language of both knowledge and love. And I want you to notice that Paul doesn't pit one against the other. He says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. You probably have quotation marks around that phrase in your Bible because most scholars believe that Paul is addressing another statement that's coming from the saints in Corinth, and he's now engaging them again in a Q&A with a new topic in mind. If you go back to chapter 6, the, the church in Corinth was saying, all things are lawful for me, and they were using this to essentially abuse the grace of God. And then verse uh, Verse 1 of chapter 7, going back to a couple weeks ago, uh, the church in Corinth was saying, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That was the statement. And Paul addresses these statements. And here we see that again. The church says, all of us possess knowledge. We know some things, Paul. And we'll get to what they know soon enough in verses 4 through 6. The summary, essentially, of verse 1 is this. Paul, we've worked out our theology, and we've come to some conclusions, and you need to hear what we have to say. And Paul says, this knowledge that you speak of puffs up, but love builds up. Now, this is interesting because if you read the entirety of uh, Paul's letters in the New Testament, you see Paul has a reputation for valuing knowledge uh, among Christians. Colossians 3, verses 2 through 3 say this, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Set your mind on, think about, have your mind controlled by, is the Greek uh, translation of that, that word, that phrase. 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about, consider, reflect upon these things. That Paul would say theology matters greatly. That Christianity is a thinking faith. That it's through the mind's right understanding of, of the excellencies of Christ that our affections are stirred for him. And we're moved toward right Christian action. That you could say it this way. Right thinking leads to right feeling, which leads to right doing. And the reality is this, and Paul knows this to be true, that everyone is a theologian at the end of the day. That the word theology itself comes from two words, theos and logos. Theos means God, and logos means a word or something said. And so very simply, the word theology means a word about God or something said about God. Everyone on planet Earth has something to say about God, even atheists, namely that he doesn't exist. So the question isn't, are you a theologian or are you not? We're all theologians. The question is, do you practice good theology or is your theology crummy? That's what the Apostle Paul would, would drive at, that theology really matters, that God actually cares about our thinking, that as Christians, we're to stir one another toward good theological thinking to the glory of God. That's part of what it means to be the church, that God made us with a mind, and we're to love him with the fullness of our mind's capacity, hence the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's a part of it. So one of the first questions I would ask this morning is this. In what areas could you stand to grow theologically. 
And, and, and this is a pretty lengthy list that we could really get to the heart of. Perhaps it's the doctrines of Scripture. We live in, in a world where uh, the inerrancy of Scripture is in question. And if we can do away with that doctrine, we can do away with every other doctrine that flows from the very Scriptures themselves. And so um, do you understand why we believe that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God? Why it's the supreme authority on matters of faith and practice? Perhaps it's a need to grow in an understanding of the necessity of Scripture, that without it, uh, we, we would have no understanding of the fullness of God's character and who we are and our deep need for Jesus. Or perhaps it's um, the sufficiency of Scripture that uh, God gives us all we need in the Bible for matters of practice and faith. Perhaps it's the doctrine of the attributes of God. Perhaps there's a real struggle in life when things hit you that um, because there's not a deep rootedness in God's character, who he is, his sovereignty, his goodness, his love, his justice, his holiness, his mercy, that when, when circumstances hit, there's no ability to press into that rooted understanding of who God is and to trust him in those moments. Perhaps there's a need to grow there. Perhaps there's a need to grow in, in the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, almost every heresy that's ever happened throughout the course of church history has happened because someone went haywire with the doctrine of the Trinity. And so maybe there's uh, a need to sit down and, and to uh, grapple with the idea that Christians believe in one God and three persons. And yes, there's mystery in that, but there are things that we can know that the Bible has uh, given us in terms of understanding who God is and his very being. Perhaps it's the doctrine of creation. Do you understand um, how God made the world and, and why he made it and how he designed it and the purpose that he has for you in it? The, the doctrine of the Imago Dei, that we are created in the image of God, that we're created to be culture makers, that if you understand the doctrine of creation, it actually empowers you to go and be artistic and to dream and to create for God's glory. Perhaps it's the doctrine of prayer that actually sitting down and understanding uh, what God has to say about prayer biblically uh, might help to actually break through what feels like a ceiling between you and, and God. Perhaps it's the doctrine of, of angels and Satan and, and demons. There are a lot of people in the world that believe that uh, angels are tiny little chubby babies that just kind of you know, flutter around the, the throne of, of God. Um, that's not remotely what biblical angels are. They're mighty warrior beings. Um, it would be good to press into that. I talked to someone even this, this past week who's super excited to go to Savannah um, because uh, of the opportunity to embark on a ghost tour with the, the hopes and prayers that uh, she will see actual real live ghosts. What does the Bible say about ghosts? Are they real? Do they conflict with demons? What, what, what all is going on there? And I'm not looking to unpack all of this stuff this morning. I'm just looking to, to try to trigger you to think, maybe I do need to, to grow in some of these areas. What's your understanding of the doctrine of man? Who are we? Um, what level of goodness do we bring to the table? Um, what, what level of sin do we bring to the table? Um, what would God say about us in, in relation to animals and in relation to him? Where are we on the, the totem pole? What about the doctrine of sin? How deep does the sin problem run? What does it affect in the life of human beings? That would help to know in terms of even knowing yourself when you look in a mirror and where God's at work in your very life. What about the doctrine of Jesus? 
his very person, the life that he lived on planet earth. What does that mean for us? What about his death? What does his death afford us? What about all those doctrines that flow from the cross? The fact that he absorbed the wrath of God, the fact that he was shamed and defiled on our behalf, the fact that he stood in the courtroom and was pronounced guilty on our behalf. You have all these word pictures that flow from the very doctrines that we call Christology, the the doctrine of, of Jesus' person and work. What about the resurrection? What do you know about the resurrection? There are a lot of people who say, uh, someone just stole the body. The disciples got that wrong. What do we say about that? What do we say to people who say, I think he just passed out. I don't think he actually really died. What do you say to people who say, I think it was like some sort of Jesus Palooza thing going on on a hillside and everybody was just strung out on some sort of pharmaceuticals and they all had the same hallucination. What do you do with that? What do you do with the reality that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is at work in your life? That the more that you believe and understand the doctrine of the resurrection, it actually sets the stage for great power in your own life in the midst of real trials and suffering. What about the doctrine of salvation? What do we bring to the table? Anything? Anything more than the the empty hands of faith and our, our sin? Do we afford anything in that? Is it Jesus plus some other stuff? And we talked about that last week, or is it Christ alone? What do we believe about salvation? Are there other roads that lead to the top of that mountain? Is it Christianity? And then uh, we can just kind of, you know, mix it into a stew with other religions and, and find ourselves in the new heavens and new earth one day. What does the Bible say about that? What does the Bible say about death? As we come closer to facing it in our own lives and as we experience the death of loved ones, what does the Bible say about that? Is it okay to grieve death? Is is it okay to experience great hope in the midst of death? Is there anything to hope for when you lose someone? What What does the Bible say about that? What does the Bible say about the church? What does Jesus have to say about his bride? How do you define the church? Is it a building? Is it a service? Is it a group of people? What does the Bible say when when that word gets thrown out? And then what about the doctrines of heaven and hell? There are a lot of people in our culture today that um, would profess to be annihilationists. They believe that uh, there may be a heaven, but there is no hell, that we're just going to cease to exist if we don't make it into heaven. How do you reconcile that with the fact that Jesus talked about hell more than any other subject in the Gospels? What do you do with the doctrine of purgatory? Is that place real? What, what, is there a middle ground between heaven and hell? And, and what happens when we, when we die? These are things that we need to press into. And you could hear that and you could go, that just sounds really daunting to me. And I don't even know where to start. And the response would be, just start anywhere. Whatever intrigues you. Just start there and begin to, to grow in your understanding of who God is and what he's revealed to us through the scriptures because he hasn't left us just with sunsets and mountains and beaches, which are beautiful. I love all of those things. I, again, I, I said earlier, I worked outdoors as much this week than I did indoors, but there's something glorious about what God's given us in the scriptures so that we can know him, that we can find answers to some of these questions as he's revealed them to us. See, here's the great problem. Protestants will say um, to Catholics, you have your Pope, I have my Bible. But the reality is that if we don't ever open the scriptures and and press into the scriptures and seek to supplement and and help ourselves alongside of the scriptures with good resources that will help us to understand the scriptures, then we're we're no different. Then I become the Pope for everyone in this church functionally. And I don't want to be the Pope. 
I, I just want to be a good, faithful, diligent expounder of the scriptures. That's, all, that's what I want to do, and, and I want to come alongside and help however I can. So basically what I'm arguing is that everybody in this church should own a systematic theology book. Like, whether you read it from cover to cover, you should own something alongside of the scriptures with the scriptures being supreme in that relationship that can help to grow in those areas. If you, if you want to know uh, where to go, I can, I can point you in the direction to get your hands on some resources that will help you to grow in these areas. But understand that Paul is not pitting uh, theology against love. He's not pitting the head against the heart in this passage. That's not what's happening at all. Paul loves right thinking for the glory of God. But he says, be careful that your acquiring of knowledge doesn't turn you into a theological bobblehead who has no affection for Jesus and never puts hands and feet to anything that they say that they believe at a mind level. And so he goes on to say, this knowledge that you speak of puffs up, but love builds up. That the more you know, is this not true? I mean, if you say I'm the exception to this rule, you're you're the center of the rule that I'm about to throw out. The more you know, the more likely you are to become an unloving, arrogant know-it-all. Is that not true of human nature? That the more knowledge you acquire, the more you find yourself on a pedestal looking down your nose at people who don't know as much as you. That knowledge is a good thing. So let's, let's don't miss the boat on that. Knowledge is a very good thing, but the human heart can be very fickle and wicked. Um, and, and the heart likes to take good things like knowledge and wield it for our own glory at the end of the day. David Garland in his commentary says this. He says, Paul is, not, uh, Paul is an enemy not of knowledge per se, but of knowledge that is not informed by faith or directed by love, that inflates egos and wants to put itself on display and receive acclaim. The only knowledge that counts with Paul is that which is Christ-centered and results in other-centered loving behavior. That uh, Paul contrasts the difference between puffing up, it's the idea of blowing up a balloon, inflating, uh, it's, it's very self-focused, And then building up, edifying, making a sturdy framework out of the house of God, the church made up of you and I, living stones. That's that's others-minded. And so one question that we could look at diagnostically this morning is this. Are you on a mission to inflate your own ego or to edify others? And, and, And here's the crazy thing. The more egocentric you are, uh, the more likely you are to justify yourself and, and not own your own egotism. That, isn't that weird how that works? Like, if, if you're more of a megalomaniac, you're going to hear me and go, this is for anybody else but me. Um, are you on a mission to inflate your own ego or to edify others? And then as a follow-up, what would it look like if you resolved yourself, if I resolved myself each morning to edify others rather than inflating self? What, what would a typical day look like if we rolled out of the bed, off the pillow, with the mentality in mind of, I'm going to seek to build up others in Christ today, rather than inflating my own ego and building a name for myself. Margaret Mitchell, University of Chicago, New Testament scholar, says this very simple statement, but very profound. Love is the mortar between the bricks of the Christian building. That you could say it this way, as a brick house without mortar is liable to crumble, right? It will, it surely will. You can just push it over. As a brick house without mortar is liable to crumble, so is a theologically astute Christian without love. Let me say that again. As a brick house without mortar is liable to crumble, so is a theologically astute Christian without love. This is what you see in in couples counseling. Um, People come into a room 
And the goal from the very start, you can sniff it out in a blink, is my goal is to win the argument rather than the other person. And so is my goal to win the argument rather than the other person. And so two people want to win an argument and no one wants to win the other person. And that never goes well. That it's very different to come into uh, relational encounters with the mentality of how can I be about building up that other person rather than emerging victorious and lawyering them for my own glory. Paul goes on to say, if anyone imagines in verse 2 that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. That Paul says to beat your chest about what you know shows what little you actually do know. That boasting about one's knowledge is a declaration of one's own foolishness, Paul would say. William Kay in his commentary says it this way. He says, knowledge is proud that it has learned so much. Wisdom is humble that it knows no more. Knowledge says, look at all the books that I've read. Look at my study. Look at my library. Aren't I great? Wisdom says, look at all the books I have not yet read. Look at all the growing that still needs to take place in my life. Look at how far I am from the glorified version of myself. That true knowledge leads to wisdom and humility, not arrogance and boasting. In contrast to knowing Notice in this verse how Paul drives at the importance of loving God and being known by God. Um, This takes me to a very famous passage in Scripture, Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 21 and on. says this. Many of you have heard this verse, this passage before. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus goes on to say, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That when Jesus talks here, he's not talking about this cognitive knowing uh, about your Facebook profile. He's not saying, hey, I I never knew what movies you, you liked. So... It's just not going to work for us. I, I never knew uh, your birthday. I, I never knew uh, what kind of hobbies you were into. I knew, never knew your favorite bands. Rather, this kind of language, this knowing language in Matthew chapter 7, uh, which is the same word used here in verse 3 of this morning's passage, being known by God, is a Greek word that means knowledge through personal experience. It means intimate knowledge. Let let me show you how deep that runs. If you go to Luke chapter 1, verse 34, Mary, uh, mother of Jesus, is talking to the angel who comes to her and says, um, you will conceive of a son and his name shall be Jesus and he will deliver uh, God's people. And Mary engages with the angel in humility and says, how will this be since I am a virgin? And this is where translation loses something a bit because if you read this particular verse in the original language, it says something like this. How will this be, not since I I am a virgin, but since I do not know a man. Same word for know. She's talking about sexual intimacy that would bring a baby into the world, and she uses that that word know. This is the word that Paul uses here. He says to be known by God has that kind of intimacy and union to it. And that's what drives everything. Paul says verse 3 is what it comes down to this morning. It should be driving everything in the Christian life. That, that if we love God and others, it's because we've been scandalized by the reality that God would draw near to us with that kind of intimacy and deeply love us. That you could say if you haven't been scandalized by the deep love of God for you, 
that if you don't find your validation in Christ alone, you'll resort, resort to the pursuit of more knowledge to, to try to feel validated in the eyes of God, which can only lead to pride if you're reading enough of those books and despair if you're not. Paul says we deeply need to be immersed in the gospel, that Jesus lived the life we couldn't live. He died our death. He rose conquering sin and death. And and we're not just saved by him, but we're united to him. That there's a great doctrine called union in Christ. You see Paul talk about it all the time in the New Testament. Whenever you see the phrase in him or in Christ, that's the doctrine that Paul is championing. He's championing this intimate relational knowing relationship that's going on between us uh, and God that's afforded to us by way of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which is quite amazing. He goes on in verse 4 to say this. He says, Therefore, in light of everything that we just talked about, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. We know that. And that there is no God but one. Now, now that Paul's brought them down a peg or two, he's, he's humbled them. It helped them to see the beauty of the gospel. He now actually affirms their theology. He says, we know there's only one God. We know that uh, worshiping idols is foolishness. I I love this passage in Isaiah chapter 44. It's my favorite passage on idolatry and just the foolishness of idolatry. Uh, Listen to these words. They're up on the screen. Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 14, talking about the idolater uh, here Isaiah says, he cuts down cedars, get this picture in your mind, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire, over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. You see the folly of that? That a man would plant a tree that would have no life otherwise had he not planted it in the ground and watered it, and then he falls down and worships the same tree that he played a part in creating the life of. It's absurd. Now, we see that and we go, yeah, it's pretty dumb. I'm not going home today and chopping up firewood and carving idols out of it or melting my jewelry into you know, some fashion sort of being that I can then bend a knee to over the course of the afternoon. That's not gonna happen for me, but... If we're honest for a second, don't we all have our own blocks of wood, quote unquote? That aside from God, there are things that we cry out to the same as the man in Isaiah 44, deliver me for you are my God. You're the thing that can save me. You're the person that can save me. This is what we call functional saviors. We all have these personal hells that we, we think if we end up here, life's gonna be over. So if it's loneliness, then the functional savior becomes another human being, maybe even a pet. If the, if the personal hell is uh, body image being off, then the functional savior becomes the next diet or the next workout regimen. And are other people, significant others, bad? No. Are, are pets bad? Some of them are. I'd argue cats maybe, but um, are, uh, are diets bad? No. Are 
our workout regiments bad? Like the, these things in and of themselves uh, are not problematic, but we take things that aren't morally good or evil and we elevate them to a place of God-like stature so that uh, we in hope that they'll save us. And in doing so, we commit the same folly that the man in Isaiah 44 commits. Paul says, in the midst of our folly, there's one hope. There's one God, there's one creator, there's one deliverer, there's one savior. Verse 5, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, quote-unquote, yet for us there is one God the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That there are many so-called gods. There are many objects of affection. The human heart is constantly pumping them out. John Calvin put it this way. He said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. We're constantly cranking out the next thing that we hope will deliver us. And Paul says, no, there's one God. There's one creator. Everything else is creation, not to be worship. There's one deliverer. There's one redeemer. Nothing else can deliver us, only Jesus. And for some of us, that's the takeaway this morning, that we need to set down the blocks of wood and look to Jesus for hope. Paul says we know all of this to be true. He says, verse 7, however, however, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. That, that there's some that at, at a mind level, they get it, that there's one God. Doctrinally, yeah, I'm with you. I, I believe that there's one God. But their hearts haven't fully absorbed that truth yet. That their past association with these quote-unquote gods are etched on their consciences. That Paul says their consciences are weak. That word means morally frail, morally feeble, morally sickly. Let, let me read to you um, just a, a brief passage out of one of the commentaries that I, I read through this week to try to make sense of what Paul's saying here. N.T. Wright in his commentary says this, The problem Paul's facing is that several of the Christians in Corinth, before their conversion, which was after all quite recent, had been regular worshipers in the shrines of the idols. They knew what went on there. The dark sense of mystery and fear, the sense that in feasting at the God's table, you were really eating and drinking the God himself, taking his life to be your own life. And then, and then you have the drink and the sense of casting off moral restraint, the girls and boys waiting, waiting around the back to do whatever you wanted in return for a little extra payment to the God. He's talking sex there. And once you had shared in that dark but powerful world on a regular basis, perhaps for many years, it would be difficult in your memory and imagination to separate part of it from the whole thing. Now that you had become a Christian, you would feel that you had been rescued from the world of darkness and brought out into the light. True worship wasn't like that. Truly human living wasn't like that. You had escaped. You were free. And looking back, you wouldn't be able to split that old world up into different bits. You wouldn't be able to say that this bit was all right while that bit was wicked. The very smell of the meat that you used to eat in the temple with the priests chanting and the drink and the prostitutes waiting for you would bring it all back. It would be natural and right that your conscience could not, without some years of teaching, prayer, and wise help, cope with any element of the old package deal, even if Christian friends who perhaps hadn't had that background um, had no problem with one aspect of it, namely the meat. 
And Paul is concerned, deeply concerned for such people. He doesn't want their consciences to be troubled. I think it would be crazy for us not to assume that there are people in, in our midst right now who, who resonate with that, with that kind of language. That um, your past association with certain things that in and of themselves aren't bad make it really difficult for you to think about engaging those very things without it being to your destruction. Maybe even places that you've uh, lived out just uh, horrific seasons of, of irreligious, reckless, sinful living to the dishonorment of God that you go, I don't even think I could go back to that place because to do so uh, would be devastating to my very conscience and might lead me astray. The reality is that most of the things themselves are not bad. They're, they're things that we've taken to the lowercase g, God level, and now they become problematic at a heart level for us, even as Christians at times. Paul says in verse 8, he says, Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. That food isn't morally good or evil. We, we do that thing where we try to attach morality to certain things so that we can dodge the wickedness of our own human hearts. The heart's the problem, right? The heart will take a good thing like food and, and turn it into the sin of gluttony. The heart will take a good gift like sex and turn it into the sin of pornography and sex trafficking and prostitution. That, that's what the human heart does. The gift itself is not, is not the problem. Paul says in verse 9, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? We're moving toward wrapping up this morning. Let me just let me give you some things that I think are crucial to get out of these last few verses of the text. Number one, um, we're all both strong and weak. It would be very easy to read this passage and to determine what category you fit in and then kind of figure out how to live in light of that. Well, okay, I, I guess I'm the strong man in this particular passage because uh, my conscience isn't feeble and weak, as you described. Or I'm a new Christian, so yeah, I think I'm one of those weak ones. I, I relate to that. The reality is we're both. What's crazy is if you look at 1 Corinthians 8, this whole issue of meat being offered to idols, the Jews would have found themselves in the category of being strong. We know those aren't real gods. Those pagan gods that you Gentiles worship, we're free to do whatever we, we want. The Gentiles would have experienced the, the feeling of, of a feeble conscience in the midst of this context that they're now wrestling with. But here's the crazy thing. You go to Romans chapter 14, and the entire script gets flipped. Paul's dealing with the same kind of language, but he, he's talking dietary laws here, and he says uh, to the, the Jews, you're not bound to your Old Testament ceremonial laws. And they're going, we can't get past that, Paul. We're struggling with that one. Meanwhile, the Gentiles are going, got no beef with that, Paul. Sounds good to me. All of a sudden, the weak become strong, and the strong become weak. That we're all both depending on the topic at hand, depending on the experience of the day and what you're facing and whether you come face-to-face -face with your former association with gods that you used to make much of or maybe even present day are struggling not to make much of right now. We all have our former objects of affection that categorize us as weak, and we all have things that God has redeemed us by the power of the Holy Spirit to make us stronger and so that we find more freedom in the gospel. Secondly, the danger here is sin, not offending other people in the church. So people will take a passage like this and go, it offends me that you believe that or that you make this judgment call with how you live your life as a Christian. 
And so you just need to stop with that decision and make the way I interpret the scriptures your interpretation. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's not saying that Christians should set their liberties aside in order not to offend people who disagree. He's saying that we should set our liberties aside if they could cause a fellow believer to sin. Listen to this quote from N.T. Wright. It's very blunt. I'll set it up from the top this way. He says, this isn't an excuse for people with small minds and badly educated consciences to prevent the rest of the church from doing things that are harmless in themselves. Sometimes people from a very narrow background full of rules and restrictions which have nothing to do with the gospel itself and everything to do with a particular social subculture try to insist that all other good Christians should join them in their tight little world. But in a case like that, Wright says, the rule-bound Christians are in no danger of having their consciences damaged. They're not being led astray, he says. They're quite sure of their own correctness. Paul is dealing with a very different case here. Do you see the difference in, in what Paul's driving at here? It's about edifying a brother or sister who's really struggling at a heart level uh, with a fear of destruction and defilement in their own lives. Third thing is there are some things that no Christian is free to do. And so Paul's going to go on in chapter 10 to say, uh, you never go to a pagan worship service in a temple and eat meat there. You never participate in communion with other gods. That, you just don't do that. You're, you're erring into the world of the demonic at that point. And, and so uh, for us, there would be versions of this. There's no redeemed version of pornography. There's no Christian pornography website. You're not going to find that one. There's no redeemed version of drunkenness. There's no Christian drunkenness that exists in the world. There's no Christian uh, sex trafficking that exists in the world. There are certain things that cannot be redeemed by very nature of what they are. But when you do find things that are redeemable, the reality is that Christian freedom must be laid down when it leads others to sin. That's what Paul's saying, that what might not lead you down a path to sin may lead another Christian down a path to sin based on his or her story and, and what they've come out of. And if you knowingly do that, Paul gets really strong as he closes out this chapter of the Bible. He says in verse 11, uh, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their consciences, uh, their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. He says, it has to do with your brother or sister on the one hand, that you wound that person's conscience. That word in the Greek means to beat. You beat their conscience. You strike their conscience. You inflict a blow on their conscience, Paul says. And he goes on to say that that person ultimately can experience destruction. Now, we know based on this verse that that doesn't mean their soul. He says this is a person Christ died for. But we do know that a person's life can lead toward a path of destruction and death James 1 says it. He says, uh, when talking about temptation, we're lured and enticed by our own desire. He says, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. That we can actually participate in the destruction of other brothers and sisters around us by the decisions that we make. But Paul gets even stronger than that. He says, not just what it does to your brother or sister in Christ. He says, what it does to you personally. He says, you sin against your brother or sister in Christ. He says, you dishonor the image of God in another person whom Jesus spilled his blood for. 
And he says, ultimately, you sin against Jesus himself. This is strong language here. He's, he's saying that Jesus is so united. He's so knit, going back to that union in Christ language. He's so knit to his bride, Jesus is, that when you sin against the church, you sin against Jesus. That's why Paul, uh, during his conversion story in uh, Acts chapter 9, as he encounters the risen Jesus, hears the words, not Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting Stephen? Why are you around for his stoning and endorsing that? Why are you dragging my people into prisons? He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When you persecute my church, when you hurt my church, you come against me in that moment. That's what Paul's saying here, that when you lead a brother or sister down a path to sin knowingly and willingly, you're participating in sinning against the very one who spilled his blood for that person. And thus Paul would say, final verse of chapter 8, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. That What Paul is really saying here is this. He's saying, my understanding of the gospel affords me an incredible deal of freedom. And in fact, as I grow in the gospel more and more, I experience more freedom. Because I can use more things in a way that I would have used for wickedness before to the glory of God. He says, but I'll never elevate my freedom above my love for the brotherhood. Never going to happen, Paul says. That my rights, my comfort are less important than love for fellow Christians and concern for their good. That they're so precious to Christ that he died for them and therefore they're precious to me too. That's the kind of love that wins in the church. That's the proper way to use that hashtag. Now, here's the reality. As we get ready to leave this morning, this doesn't play out by uh, you walking into any environment that you now find yourself and going, I need to learn uh, everyone's stories here. I need to figure out, like, if you go to grazing here for lunch, what are, what are you going to do? You're going to order that alcoholic beverage because you don't know every story in that room at this point. So how, how do you handle that? I don't think Paul's saying you, you now need to walk into every room and somehow have x-ray vision on the human conscience. But rather, he's talking about the church. In the context of the church here, he's saying, what we need to do is better understand those former associations to quote-unquote gods in people's lives. We, we need to get past the surface-level stuff and get down to the nitty-gritty of where people came from. What's your story? What are you prone to possibly uh, moving in the direction of destruction if you were to engage right now as a Christian? Tell other people what that looks like. What does it look like for you right now to want to lean on things to deliver you other than Jesus present day? What might it be right now, not just past tense, but present tense, that could lead you on a path to destruction? And as we begin to engage one another's stories and to share these things, then it's incumbent upon each of us in those moments where we find ourselves among the strong to then say, for the sake of the brotherhood, I'm gonna lay down every liberty I have to to love you well. It comes down to, to excavating our stories in one another's lives and, and caring to know each other's stories and then doing something with it that honors God and loves one another. As we close this morning, We'll take communion in a moment. We do that as a brotherhood. It's a sweet opportunity for us as a church to collectively proclaim the, the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, the, the bread representing his body, the cup representing his blood. We take the, the bread and dip it in the cup here. Um, as you come, 
Uh, these are just a few questions that I'd, I'd throw out for you to, to sit with this morning. Going back to the theological piece, where, where's there a need for growth in your life? Where might God be calling you to, to spend the next season of your life growing in terms of who he is and who you are and, and what the Bible has to say about Christianity and, and the world? As it pertains to love, are you on a mission to inflate your own ego or, or is your desire really to, to love your brothers and sisters in Christ and to see them edified and, and built up for the glory of God? Do you need to spend more time scandalized by the fact that the God of the universe intimately, intimately knows you? Maybe, maybe that's just square one for all of us, that we just need to sit and, and sit long enough until the love of God revealed to us in Christ just scandalizes us, that we just think for a second, that just sounds foolish, that God would love me that much. Aside from God, what do you view as capable of delivering you? What are your functional saviors? Again, those are things that need to be shared with others in the church so that they know not to lead you down those, those paths toward those, those quote-unquote gods that are no gods. This would be a good one for us. Are you knowingly leading another Christian down a path to sin? Maybe for your own, uh, I don't know, for your own uh, joy's sake, entertainment's sake. Like, they're not going to rob me of my freedom. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get mine because I know God, and I know that this is true and this is not true. And, and, and all of a sudden, we find ourselves leading others down a path of destruction. Are you, are you finding yourself in those shoes? And then lastly, are are those who Jesus determined are precious enough to die for precious to you as well? This, should, this, should, this passage should foster a deep love for the church in us, I think. A deep love for those that surround us. These are not just attenders that you're surrounded by. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus' blood flowed from the cross for everyone in this room who confesses him as Savior and Lord. That's amazing. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.